This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. Food plots are a rabbit hole discussion. It's easy for folks to get over their head sometimes. And, you know, that's where Mark and I come into play. So I just really encourage folks who are wanting to start off on the right foot to give your local biologist a call. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I am your co-host, Ashley Olson, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension, and I serve as the agriculture educator in Vernon County. And joining me today as my other co-host is Carl Dooley, who is the agriculture agent in Buffalo County, Wisconsin. So, Carl, we're here today to talk about some wildlife food plots, huh? Definitely. Um, last night I was out fertilizing some some research plots we have on oats and some deer came out of the woods to visit me about 7.30 and, and I asked them not to eat my oat plots and they obliged and took off. And and then way uh, this morning as I got up, the turkeys were gobbling. So things in the wildlife are, are heating up or coming alive. Uh, and um, I appreciate them. I'm not a hunter or fisherman, but I still appreciate wildlife. So it's a little different topic today. Definitely is. And, and I'm with you. I definitely appreciate the wildlife. Uh, I live uh, near Viroqua and not only do we have plenty of deer, turkeys, we have lots of raccoons that I've seen as well. And so I'm interested to know today as we talk more about these wildlife food plots, what, what kind of animals are we attracting to the food plots? I think between Mark and Eric, our guests, they'll, they'll answer those questions. And and uh, give us a, a variety. So um, uh, we introduced ourselves. So let's have our guests introduce themselves and maybe we'll start with Jerry Clark. He's a well-known uh, name on our podcast and, and but he, today he's gonna serve as a guest and as a guest expert. Oh, thank you, Carl and Ashley. Uh, yeah, little other side of the fence today being on the interview side of this. Uh, but yes, I'm a ag agricultural educator with the Division of Extension UW-Madison in Chippewa County, serving in the agronomy, crops and soils area for the last 23 years, basically based out of Chippewa County, worked out of Eau Claire for a little while, uh, but uh, have basically uh, done a lot of work within uh, agronomy and growing crops. So we grow things and then Eric and Mark can tell us how to, you know, we try to keep things away from them, I guess, and <laughs> now they're coming back. We're trying to attract them in. So little other side of the fence today. So appreciate the invite. And Mark Rasmussen is our, our guest from DNR. He is the wildlife, uh, and I don't know if I'll get your title correctly, and, uh, and you can you can state it yourself, but he's here in Buffalo County with the DNR. So Mark, uh, Mark if you'd introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about, about what you do, and then maybe introduce our other guest, Eric. Sure. Uh, thanks, everybody. Yeah, I'm Mark Rasmussen. I'm the wildlife biologist with the Wisconsin DNR uh, covering Buffalo and Trampolo County. I'm based out of Buffalo County, just like Carl. Uh, I've been with the or I've been with the department for almost 15 years now, and I'm going on eight here, uh, covering Buffalo and Trempolo County in my current role. Uh, yeah, and I just uh, my job is uh, pretty diverse. If it has to do with uh, wildlife in my two county area, I'm at least somewhat involved. You know, both from the 
season setting process as well as I manage uh, over 20,000 acres of public lands in those two counties uh, for manage the habitats on those properties for uh, wildlife and diversity. And then I also provide uh, a role as a consultant to uh, consulting with private landowners in my area who are interested in uh, improving the wildlife habitat on their property. Eric? Yeah, thanks everybody for having me on. My name is Eric Cannonia. I am the Southern District Deer Biologist for the Wisconsin DNR out of the Dodgeville office. And uh, I cover 18 counties in a working unit we call the Southern District and pretty much the deer liaison. So anything that has to do with deer, um, I usually facilitate that uh, from the individual counties kind of going up to the top. I also do private lands work and uh, help out mainly during the fall with CWD and other deer season logistics. Well, I think uh, there, there was one term that you just said, Eric, I, I don't think we're going there today, but CWD, but uh, let's, let's talk about the other aspects of both deer and wildlife. And, and if I could, let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of managing woodlots for wildlife in general versus kind of managing them for deer and for deer hunting. Uh, and Eric and Mark, uh, whoever wants to take a stab at that. I guess I can jump in to start. I think as it goes to woodlots, really uh, management for that is good for deer is going to benefit a lot of other wildlife. I mean, deer are a generalist species. Uh, certainly there are, there are some management activities that are, are less beneficial to deer, but pretty much anything you're doing to improve the habitat quality of your your woodlands, whether that's, you know, timber harvester, invasive species control, or, you know, supplemental planting or anything like that is going to benefit deer as well as other wildlife species. But uh, we can get into some more specifics as we move forward, I guess. Yeah, and just adding on to that, like, like Mark said, deer umbrella species, so kind of a trickle down effect when you manage for deer, you're going to benefit a bunch of other species and work in quite a bit with private landowners. In most cases, when you give them an option of you know, a management practice that'll only benefit deer and nothing else versus a management practice that'll benefit deer and a bunch of different things. Um, most landowners are eager to kind of go with the, the broad scale approach. So when, when kind of starting to talk about this, uh, what is the difference then, because we're, we're talking about deer, but between a wildlife food plot versus a deer food plot? I know when I'm talking to a lot of different people, whether they're neighbors, landowners, everyone says, I got to plant my deer plot, but that's not always the case. There are food plots for other animals and wildlife as well, correct? Yeah, there, there certainly are. I mean, uh, I think uh, in general, any food plot you plant is going to get used by multiple species of wildlife uh, just because, you know, they're pretty much, you know, like clover is a popular food plot everything basically eats clover so there is that but uh, you know I, I i tend to think that a lot of deer specific plots tend to be uh more monotypic individual species and then uh, if you're going to be putting a food plot together together that's going to be more beneficial for a wider array of species as well as deer you're going to generally be looking at uh planting a, a more diverse food plot Okay, you mentioned species. Let's talk a little bit about that. And, and uh, maybe um, let's start with Eric. Uh, if you're going to plant um, a plot specifically for, for, let's, for deer, let's say we really, really into whitetail, I'm really into hunting. Um, what, what kind of species are, are 
planted versus what kind of species are really desirable in your in your opinions? Well, I'm going to start off by giving the uh, the famous biologist answer, and it, it depends. It's really site to site specific, condition specific, you know, soils, weather, um, location, and not only the state but um, the country, deer density, habitat, surrounding habitat types, and uh, just all those things really go into uh, making a recommendation. So I think most things we're talking about today probably be general, generalistic, and then, um, you know, in, interested individuals are always encouraged to reach out to their local, local professionals for kind of more site-specific stuff. But in general terms, anything from your your grains, uh, soybeans, corn, oats, wheat, rye, down to a myriad of clovers, and you can get into specifics, uh, species that are planted that aren't very common, like maybe uh, iron clay cowpeas, um, lab lab, brassica, chicory, other things like that. There's, there's a ton of stuff out there, and if you've been to any outdoor store, you've probably seen multiple racks full of uh, different seed blends with a uh, you know, fancy lettering and big bucks on them. Jerry, that gives kind of an opening. You want to hop in there? The difference between uh, the uh, what you might see in a traditional wildlife store versus where you might find other places to buy something similar? Yeah, and I'm with Eric on this where you, uh, I've always find it interesting the the names of the, the uh, products that are out there with the seed blends from Buckmaster and Monster Buck or whatever that that is. So um, yeah, we usually see these blends um, pretty popular. They're convenient uh, to buy at some of the sporting goods stores, but you can often find these same seed mixes or if it is more of a monotype or if it is a mix uh, at your local co-op, that might be uh, a third of the price if you're looking for uh, like Mark and Eric said, just the clover. Um, if, if everything will eat clover, it's pretty cheap to go to a, your local co-op and get uh, red clover for four bucks a pound versus maybe buying, you know, uh, spending thirty dollars for for ten pounds on on something that is pretty similar. Um, if it obviously there's mixes, but you can have your local co-op mix up uh, uh, certain blends for you. If it's grasses or grains, like Eric was talking about, um, it's pretty cheap to make a mix uh, through a, a local dealer than versus going maybe to the sporting goods store and, and buying um, the fancy labeled stuff. Yeah. One thing I would uh, interject on is uh, one thing I would avoid if you're going to have mixtures is grass. You know, you tend to see annual or perennial ryegrass is a pretty common filler in a lot of food plot mixes, especially the ones you see, you know, with the, with the big bucks on the bag. And, uh, well, it's deer will eat it and other wildlife species will eat it. They're not really preferred forage for pretty much anything. And uh, so it can be a component of the, of the mix if you really want it to be, but it's not something that I would, uh, you know, want to see a lot of in, in any kind of mix that's not deer or deer and most other wildlife species are going to focus on stuff that are coming from the uh, the forb side of the family yeah that's a that's a great point mark i think uh, the other thing to remind uh folks of is uh check for some of these can become weeds uh, like your perennial ryegrass and things like that if this is to be an annual plot that you're going to plant each year or you're going to put clover in or maybe a little alfalfa something that's a perennial be careful of of some of these mixes that you might buy there could be an invasive species or 
uh, it suddenly becomes a, a, a weed, even though it may not be an invasive species, but uh, it could be a problem in your, your woodland or your field down the road. Yeah, you know, some of those uh, those big names, they use stuff like that as fillers, but not to completely knock on them. They're, they're good in, you know, some regards, especially if you have small uh, plots to plant. I, I've run into issues at some co-ops where you kind of have a minimum or a, a minimum um, amount of seed that you can purchase. So that may um, lend itself to some things. And then there are also some like trademark name blends and specific name brand seeds that you can generally only buy in, in an outdoor store. But um, I think in most cases, folks could save a couple extra bucks and go with the brown bag. And so are you, uh, and this is a question for, for any anyone that's on here um, today, recommending as we're talking about some of these different species and blends, uh, these food plots, are they annual or are they more perennial food plots when you're looking at planting, you know, I'm new to new, want to put in a wildlife food plot. What should I do? Um, I can take a stab at that one too. And again, back to the famous wildlife answer it depends. I think most cases you want to have a mix of annual and perennial. I think a lot of folks recently gravitate towards perennial because um, in theory, you can plant them and have them stay uh, viable for a number of years, but that doesn't mean you can just plant once and step away. There's herbicide application, mechanical mowing applications, and reseeding that does need to take place. Um, whereas annuals, you plant them um, each year. They have one growing cycle. Um, so you do have to plant again and again. But generally, the, kind of the main difference is perennials put a focus on first year growth downwards, so the root system, and less upwards, where annuals not having to last more than a year, focus growth up. So you get a faster, more vigorous growth that in, in most cases can outcompete uh, some of the common weeds. So that can be a positive for, for folks planting food plots as well. Yeah, good thing to throw in any kind of mix, especially if you are going to be trying to establish a perennial uh, is, is oats because they, I mean, oats will pretty much grow on anything. I mean, they, they dang near grow on pavement if they get some rain and and uh, yeah, they can help really serve as a nurse crop and also take some of the, uh, the forage pressure off of the other stuff, the perennial stuff you're trying to establish and let that, like Eric said, you know, it's let that get established and send its, send its growth downward and not get mowed down to the ground by the deer because they're eating on the oats that have uh, sprouted up above everything else. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out to Jerry. I just bought a piece of property. I have um, 100 acres. Uh, 20 or let's say 10 acres are, are open. The rest is wooded. And I want to put in some, uh, I want to put in some wildlife food plots some deer plots and a combination. We'll hit, we'll hit that. We'll continue on with this with Eric and Mark, but what's my first steps as a, and I don't know anything about growing crops. Well, uh, yeah, your first step is always a soil test. I think that's where you want to, um, you know, get connected with uh, your local county extension office. Uh, almost every extension office within Wisconsin either has a connection or provides that service of soil bags, uh, probes, those kind of things. And then uh, whatever uh, lab they are working with or that's local, um, many provide the mailers or you can, you can work with your local co-op as well. There's usually some uh, uh, drop-off points for, for soil testing. But number one is soil testing. 
the main thing there is looking for a basic soil test. I don't think you don't need all of the micronutrients and things like that for a deer plot or a wildlife plot. But I think what you're mainly looking for is to get the pH, which is the acidity of the soil. And then you'll get some recommendations for your nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And then that uh, soil test comes with some recommendations that you can follow. Uh, it, it, it just helps, I think, the overall health of that food plot simply because if it is something uh, like legumes, uh, I know uh, cowpeas were mentioned, these kind of things that are legumes, usually a pH of 6.3 is needed. So if you have a very acidic soil, you're going to need to apply lime maybe a year ahead of time to get that ready. So if you're seriously thinking about uh, a food plot, uh, plan at least six months to a year ahead so you can have that uh, uh, fertility program up to speed. The soil's ready when you're ready to plant. Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, don't most of the labs actually have a um, a category labeled mm -hmm. wildlife plots or food plots or something like that now? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, Carl. They do, uh, there is a formula fill out uh, along with that soil sample that you bring in. And uh, there is a mark or a, a box on there, wildlife food plot. Is it mainly grains? Is it legumes? Is it a mix? Uh, it depends on the lab and how many uh, recommendations they provide on, on what the information you're giving. So yeah, great, great question. Uh, great point was they, you, you can uh, select what you're going to be planting. Okay, oh, well, uh, let's, let's go on a little bit. I, I saw, um, and I think I sent this to everybody ahead of time that um, down in Iowa, they have a plan for food plots and for wildlife and they actually make a recommendation. And if you, you have so many acres of woods, how many acres of, of wildlife or food plot or deer plot should you have? Uh, is there anywhere to go from there, Mark and Eric in Wisconsin? Um, I'm not aware of anything like that that we produce necessarily. Um, just kind of being an avid, avid deer nerd, which kind of the general rule of thumb is three to five percent. Um, but I think that's that's really generalistic. It depends on a lot of factors, um, especially if you're adjacent to commercial agricultural fields that are pro be providing supplemental nutrition as well. You know, uh, you may not need as much, and I think it kind of lends itself to another topic that I wanted to hit on that food plots are supplemental nutrition. They shouldn't necessarily be designed to um, increase the deer herd. Um, if you're having, you know, um, population issues for one thing or one reason or another, uh, likely that food plots aren't going to help solve those. They just help, you know, increase the, the condition um, body size, put on additional muscle mass, prepare them better for the winter, help with antler growth, as well as provide hunting opportunities. But in most cases, um, it's just supplemental. Yeah, and that's something, you know, in your example, Carl, about the, you know, you said you had your new landowner with whatever 100 acres and 10 acres are open or something like that. Uh, something you should evaluate, uh, you know, with the uh, with those acreages both the open acres and the, the timbered acres is what you already have because like eric said you know food plots are, are supplemental uh i kind of i like to say when i'm out doing visits with uh with uh, landowners that food plots are a great way to kill deer uh but they're not really habitat management uh they are they are a supplemental thing and uh so you know na native forages should be the base for for uh what you're trying to do for all wildlife species. So, you know, I think something that I think that gets overlooked a lot, uh, you guys see, guys have some open ground 
uh, and they think, well, I got to convert that over into a food plot. But, you know, potentially that that open ground could already be providing a pretty high quality food source. Uh, there's a lot of species that are basically considered weeds by most people. Uh, ragweed, wild lettuce, asters, goldenrods, uh, blackberry and raspberries that uh, as long as they're fairly new growth where they've been uh, refreshed, uh, preferably through fire, are, are as good or better than most planted food plot species nutrient wise. So if you've already got that, then, uh, you know, you should be looking to keep that because that's not just providing food, but it's also then providing a significant, well, it's one, it's providing a lot more food than you're probably going to get out of any food plot that you plant. And two, it's providing not just food, but cover as well. Food plots really don't provide any kind of cover, maybe corn, if you plant that does, but but otherwise, yeah, if you if you kind of got those old field areas that are thick and brambly and full of ragweed and goldenrod and whatnot, that's a lot of food, a lot of forage is also great cover to have for does to have fawns. It's great cover for turkeys to lay their net, have their nests, and then also raise their their broods and uh, you know game bird broods of all types. Uh, they're highly, highly dependent in their growth phase on insects. They need that high protein to grow their feathers and fledge out and become adult birds. And you're not going to have much for insects in most food plots, uh, some, but not a lot. But, uh, you know, in those old field areas, when there's a lot more of those forbs and flowering species, they're loaded with bugs. And that's absolutely necessary for, for their growth. And if you're thinking about the future and wanting to, you know, have good turkey population on your property, as an example, that would be something you need to look at uh, as maintaining. doesn't mean you can't turn some of your stuff over into, uh, into a food plot. That's, there's no problem with that, but just... Think about what you got and there's a lot of stuff you can do where you can get a ton of benefit without doing basically anything other than maintaining it as that kind of early successional weedy forb area yeah and i think you hit the nail on the head mark um when you talked about food that equals cover and it may not be a traditional food plot as maybe the podcast was intended but um it's a growing trend of managing old fields early successional habitat you know identifying invasives and making sure those are out of there but you're providing just as much nutritional benefit if not more uh, with extra tonnage in addition to cover so if you're going back to your example carl about 100 acres 10 percent of it being open um you know i always want to make sure that there's adequate cover maybe that's early successional habitat maybe that's native warm season grass blends um, because uh, the bed, you know, the deer, they bed most of the day and then they make their way to the food. So you could have the best food plot in the world, but depending on where they're bedding, they may never make it there in the daytime. So, you know, even if there's a, we don't really plant any food plots on public land and I'm primarily a public land hunter, I wouldn't hunt, you know, close to a food source. I'm always trying to backtrack the deer and hunt closer to their beds because then you're going to have a better chance of catching that animal on its feet during the daylight. And that's going to translate to venison in the freezer. What about, um, and maybe this doesn't necessarily apply directly to what we're talking about with the food plots um, as far as the planting, the management, but what about water sources for the wildlife and, and the food plots? So as a former um, person who worked with the CRP, Conservation Reserve Program through USDA, and wildlife food plots that were allowed on certain CRP ground, people wanted to put watering holes, water features in that was not permitted. 
um, which I understand because it was more of a hunting type thing to say attract the deer. And that's not the point of these food plots. It's for supplemental, but do they tend to be of more value if they're near a water source or doesn't it matter? Yeah, everything drinks water, obviously. So right, another so, nutrient we all need. <laughs> right, yeah. So you know, I, I I do think having having water on your property, if that's something you don't have, is important uh, and is a is a thing you can do. Though you do need to do need to be careful about how you're doing that to make sure that you're, you know, following whatever permits you may need and all that kind of stuff for creating different water holes and stuff like that. And another thing that. Uh, needs to be on the radar of, of folks in most of Wisconsin, certainly the southern three quarters of the state anyways, is that uh, if you're creating ponds, those are generally stagnant water sources and those can be a, 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 a breeding source for the midges that spread EHD, which is uh, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, right, Eric? Yep. And that's a, that can uh, cause, well, it's, uh, that, that disease is almost, almost always fatal to deer and, uh, can cause fairly significant local reductions in deer population, especially in drier years. So that's something to keep in mind when you're making a stagnant pond, uh, you might potentially be causing yourself a problem in a future year with EHD, though, though the population will rebound in, in years following that after that, because it's not something that sticks around. It just kind of comes and goes. Wow. Interesting. Didn't even know that that was a issue that existed. Yeah, and kind of adding to the deer biology side of things, you know, deer do obviously drink water, but they get a lot of their water through a process called metabolic water. So it's, it's water obtained through breaking down their food. And uh, during the spring and summertime, at least when you have succulent uh, vegetative food sources out there, they can get a lot of water through that. So in most cases, you know, again, it kind of depends, but there's generally a pond or creek or river or something of that nature nearby and uh it's, it's probably not needed i want to i want to back up just uh just a step uh great great question about water and, and you always kind of wonder about that but uh you talked about um kind of more of a native habitat so i have this 10 acre field i keep going back to that and it's been corn and soybeans for the last 20 years um, the only thing that's going to come up maybe naturally are a bunch of weeds, correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry, but uh, um, we probably aren't going to have a whole lot of natives that are going to pop up. Um, how do I go about getting that to good wildlife habitat? Or let's, let's say I want to do half of that as some kind of native habitat and the, and the rest of it in, um, in food plots. What's my steps? I know we, Jerry told us soil test. What do I do next? Well, I'll, I'll just take the next step and then uh, I'm sure Eric and Mark probably have some uh, some uh, more detailed answers. But if it's it's more in that native side of things, uh, find natives that, again, are, we have a Wisconsin has a great listing of native plants in Wisconsin. But if you're in Green Bay versus Viroqua, those two natives are different. Um, and so find out what is native to your, your area of the state or wherever you are. And then uh, natives typically do not need all that fertility that corn, soybeans, legumes need. Uh, they're, they're designed to grow in that, those soils that um, they're native to. Uh, so from that standpoint, you, uh, the seed might be a little more expensive if you're gonna you know, try to 
um, reclaim that back into what would we would consider a native planting versus you know maybe what we would consider a uh, annual or perennial food plot. So there again, I think that's uh, the seed's going to be more expensive, but those are going to be designed as perennials over the long haul. And then it gets back into that management. Is it mowing? Is it fire? And that's where Eric and Mark can provide much more detail on that. Certainly, uh, you know, planting natives may be necessary if that, like you said, in that example, 10 acres that it's been corn and soybeans for forever. Uh, but, you know, some of those, uh, some of those uh, native weedy species I, I mentioned earlier, the ragweeds and stuff like that, that may be the stuff that comes in. You might, yeah, it might be all stuff, non-desirable, uh, mostly non-native stuff like Canada thistle and burdock and, and uh, you know, parsnip and stuff like that. If you get that coming in, obviously that's not something you're going to want on your property because it's really not beneficial for anything. And, and uh, that would be something you'd want to get rid of and that you potentially need to pursue the, you uh, you know the native planting native species which like like jerry said can be uh can be a bit expensive depending on uh you know what you're going to plant and how much you're going to plant generally uh you know most of the time when folks are converting that open ground they're going to be planting some form of prairie species which are native to most most parts of wisconsin though not all that's something important to remember is you know there are parts of wisconsin where we did not have prairie and so wouldn't necessarily be the best thing to be converting to uh but uh you know, and generally the, the grasses are going to be what's cheaper and the flowers are going to be what's more expensive. Uh, the flowers are what you're going to, the grasses are an important component of that because, you know, they provide a lot of structure and, and some forage value, not much, but some, and, and they're a component of a, a native restoration. But uh, the, the forbs are going to be what you get the most, uh, most bang for your buck out of, but that's going to be, uh, you know, considerably more expensive depending on how diverse you want to plant. You could take, take that 10 acres and spend, thirty thousand dollars planning planning it down if you wanted to make it just crazy diverse and really high rates of forbs or you could spend you know a thousand bucks and and it would be less diverse but still still good so that's uh something to keep in mind as well yeah one of the one of the quick and easy places that landowners can look for uh these native seeds are just going to the pheasants forever uh website they have a uh they have a store and it's broke down by a bunch of different states and the blends there are tailor-made for particular state so that's a pretty pretty easy way to know that you're getting a uh, a seed mixture that is going to do well in your state again some parts of the state aren't uh, don't necessarily need um, or should have prairies but for the most part you're going to be purchasing seed blend that's going to do well in Wisconsin and I believe they also sell quite a few species individually so if you want to custom uh, make a custom seed blend, you can go in there and do that as well. Another another angle you could pursue uh, is uh, native shrub plantings, native shrub and, and tree plantings, because that's another thing you can do that uh, actually would generally be uh, somewhat less expensive than a, than a prairie restoration. Uh, and uh, you can get both cover and food out of that. You're you know, talking about species like hazelnut and different dogwood species native prairie crab apple american plum hawthorn stuff like that those are all really beneficial species that provide a lot of a lot of food that are great for a wide variety of wildlife including deer uh as well as uh you know other others both game and non-game species uh though you will have to anytime you're planting uh, a woody species of any format you're going to need to protect it from those deer until it gets established uh but yeah, and a good source for that uh, with 
the Wisconsin DNR here. Uh, we have a state nursery that's out of Rapids, and uh, people can get uh, order native shrub packages from from that uh, that place for very economical prices. There is a minimum number minimum order you have to make from that, which I think is three hundred. I want to say, which is I think we can go down to you know a hundred. 100 individual stems per species but it's they, you have to have minimum order of 300 300 uh, bare root seedlings to get that from but that's a great source uh frankly native shrubs are kind of hard to get a lot of times from a commercial source so the wisconsin the, our uh, state nursery is oftentimes the best best resource for getting a lot of our native shrubs that's another another angle that folks could pursue if they're looking to you know convert some ag ground into into good wildlife habitat uh, and uh, food. Um, Mark, with those uh, native shrubs, are do you have a list, or does DNR have a list of, of first of all, what they are and what species of wildlife they may benefit the most and are most desirable for different species? Because um, uh, otherwise, you go to the commercial catalog and you, you end up like the property that I bought 29 years ago. That's all. Uh, honeysuckle and, uh, and um, um, uh, yeah, help me out, the, the, the invasive that we have in all of our woodland here, Mark. Buckthorn? Buckthorn, yes. Uh, somebody planted it at one time, and now it's just a mess. So uh, how do we go about finding out for sure what's the best species to put in? Well, we do have, uh, I know we have one uh, publication titled Woody Cover for Wildlife, I think, that does kind of discuss some of our native, both tree and shrub species and, uh, and what, what they're good for. You know, like I said, if you, if you go with the resource of getting your, getting your, your uh, shrubs from the, the state of Wisconsin and our tree nursery, you're not going to be getting invasive species because we only sell native, native species and they're going to be beneficial to a, a wide variety of uh of any of all our native wildlife basically go ahead ashley oh just wanted to as we're we're talking here today again welcoming anyone tuning in to our cutting edge podcast uh search for alternative crops in wisconsin and we're fortunate enough today to be joined by mark and eric both from the wisconsin dnr along with our special guest jerry clark as a guest today and not a host um from our division of extension. Uh, as we're talking here, I another question or thought that I had, we're talking about where we can source different seeds, um, possibly get some trees from the state nursery. Are there any other, um, and, and you both, Eric, you're part of your job is you can um, assist landowners with some of this and, and these wildlife plots are there different types of grants or, or, or funding available to help landowners that are interested in doing this? Yeah, certainly. And that's, uh, you know, that's an angle that I always try to promote when I'm meeting with landowners. Uh, one of the ones that we offer in-house is called uh, Wiffle Gap or Wisconsin Forested Landowner Grant Program. And I think the two caveats, you have to have a forest management plan, which it also provides cost share uh, funding for. And I think it's 10 contiguous acres of, of uh, timber as a, as a minimum. And with that, I think we provide up to 50% cost share for priority projects and reforesting, uh, you know, hand planting of trees, 
TSI, invasive species removal all fall along that um, priority one category. So a lot of the stuff that folks are doing on their own or that Mark and I both recommend when we're out on site visits likely can be cost shared just through an in-house DNR program. But there's also a ton of different uh, other programs out there uh, with the federal agencies that can provide cost share funding as well. One other thing I'd plug with uh, with the the Farm Bill programs and the, the you know the CRPs and and the whatnot from, from that you can get uh, through the through the NRCS and our federal agencies, uh, Wisconsin DNR we uh, we pay for uh, pheasants forever to hire uh, individuals known as Farm Bill biologists and we have them. Uh, there's oh I don't know what six or seven here in Wisconsin I think. And they all have the kind of their regions of responsibility and it's their entire job to, to go out and meet with private landowners and uh, help them navigate, navigate when they're trying to do, you know, do some of these, uh, you know, habitat work to improve their property and to get some cost share from the federal government. It's these farm bill biologists job to help these landowners, uh, you know, figure out which program is the best fit for what they want to do on their property, as well as, you know, navigate the, the world of, of uh, the Farm Bill programs and help them, uh, you know, go through the enrollment process and that kind of stuff. So that's a program I highly, highly recommend to, to prospective landowners if they are going to pursue funding through uh, through the federal government. And there's that. Um, can they find out about that if they just were to simply call um, either of you at the local DNR office, or is that something that say NRCS? Um, or a pheasants forever type um, would be promoting. Yeah, certainly you could get uh, get their contact information from your from your local biologist, your county biologist, uh, in whatever county in the state you live in. Otherwise, I would imagine if you just Googled uh, Wisconsin Farm Bill biologist, you'd probably get go to a, a page that would take you right to the contact information and the and the uh, for the each. Uh, each of those biologists in the counties they cover, but yeah, there's, and I, I don't know, I would, I would assume NRCS may as well also have, uh, have that contact information for you. So there's, there's a number of avenues you could go through to get that, uh, get that contact information. Very good to know. Thank you. And with, uh, with NRCS, I think uh, they have an office in every county or at least is represented in every county and maybe Ashley knows that better than anyone coming from the federal side, but uh, their, their environmental, quality incentive program is one that they do have a wildlife pollinator type um, programs and you do need to sign up through USDA being a federal agency. Uh, some grants, but I believe a lot of that is cost share too. It might be 70% that they'll pick the tab up on if it's a water feature or pollinators or restoration of something. So um, yeah, NRCS and your uh, natural resource conservation service in your local uh, county should have an office. Jerry, along with being a co-host sometimes and, and being an expert at other times, he's also our webmaster for our Cutting Edge uh, podcast page. And, and if Mark and Eric, if you have a, a couple references that are available online, if you can get those to me, I'll get them to Jerry and, and we can connect those with the, with the podcast uh, to help people out as they have other questions and, and need a little bit more information. Uh, and those would be up shortly. Um, any other thoughts, Ashley or Mark, Eric or Jerry? Well, just appreciate the invite and being part of this. And uh, yeah, 
uh, being kind of on the other side of the fence, I just encourage folks to check out our Cutting Edge podcast. Got lots of neat information there, and uh, I'll get the website updated as soon as I can, Carl. <laughs> that sounds great. And uh, special thanks to, to Mark and Eric. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a lot more, I think, to go into the thought of uh, developing quality food plots, quality wildlife uh, habitat than just planting some corn and soybeans. And, and I think you both pointed that out in a, a very nice manner today. Absolutely, we appreciate it. Yeah, I think, you know, food plots are a rabbit hole discussion. It's easy for folks to get over their head sometimes. And, you know, that's where Mark and I come into play. So I just really encourage folks who are wanting to start off on the right foot to give your local biologist a call, you know, talk, have these conversations with them. And if they don't know the answer, they're usually more than willing to find somebody who does. So, you know, we are a resource to folks and we want to see you succeed. Great. Thank you. And I'll turn it back to Ashley for our windup. Right. So we would like to thank everyone today for joining us on our podcast, The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. Uh, as always, you can go and listen to the recordings. Again, if you would like to capture more information on our website at fyi.com extension.wis.edu. Thank you, everyone. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.